Hi everyone! Today we have a very special episode for you. I'm joined by JJ and we're going to be talking about the parallels between Achilles and Patroclus and Dean and Cass. JJ, welcome back to Carrying Wayward. Hi! Thanks! It's good to be back. Third time! Oh my goodness, I'm so happy that you're back, honestly. And thank you for agreeing to, to come back and talk about this. If you say my name three times, I show up on your podcast. That's, that's what happens. Okay, noted. So for our listeners who might not know you, uh, JJ is an actor and TikToker from South Carolina who breaks down queer representation and media. He's also a host on Thirsty Thursday, a weekly live show that discusses all things happening in pop culture and an actual play campaign. Is there anything else you'd like to add? We just started our, had our first uh, campaign session just the other day. So Make sure you are got your notifications for when we go live on TikTok every Thursday. And it's actually a really, really cool experience. It's me and my co-host Sly. We are trading who's DMing and who's playing every week in the same world. It's a world that we built together. So it's a lot of fun and like a active, creative, magical experience all in once. So make sure you guys are watching out for that. I'll have to tell Drew about this. He's going to love it. So just to give listeners a little bit of context here, because it feels like it, this might be a little bit outside of the stuff that we do usually, um, the idea for this episode kind of emerged from another episode that we recorded together when we were guests on the Supernatural Opinions podcast. And we ended up talking about Greek tragedy and why it works when the characters die at the end and how different um, character death especially at the end of Supernatural has felt. It gave us a lot of brainworms, a lot of thinky thoughts about the Supernatural finale, about how Dean and Cass's story ends in the end uh, on screen, and also the parallels and the differences with Achilles and Patroclus's relationship. We didn't really get to expand on that during the recording of Supernatural Opinions, so we thought we would talk about it now. Supernatural, the finale, it felt like it was supposed to be this really epic thing and this uh, have a purpose and trying to make a point. And it very much felt like we were supposed to be sad for a reason, like, and, but we were supposed to feel, they were trying to make us feel sad on purpose. And it was supposed to be a tragic ending to this hero, but a tragic ending that we were supposed to know all along, like this was the right ending to this story. And I had a lot of thoughts about tragedy and, you know, the tradition of tragedy. And then you bringing in Achilles and Patroclus, this incredibly famous homoerotic relationship. It was a fascinating way to think about a modern story through the lens of a centuries-old tradition that is still impacting the way that we tell stories. This episode from Supernatural Opinions hasn't come out yet. It is upcoming in their feed, so make sure that you're watching for it. We will also be uh, sharing it once it's uh, once it's released. So for now, like if we can maybe talk a little bit about greek tragedy as a genre just a little bit so that you know people like me who don't necessarily have a background in like narrative 
storytelling or anything like that. You know, I don't have a literary background. I don't have like an acting background or anything like that. So is there anything that you kind of want to tell us about Greek tragedy before we get into this conversation? So the Greek tragedy is the basis of the way that we tell tragic stories, even today. Um, and you can kind of trace its lineage through the uh, Roman gladiator stories. It's really, really pre prevalent in Shakespeare's uh, tragedies. It's almost a one-to-one -one, uh, uh, translation from the Greek structure to Shakespeare's tragedies. Like, they are very, very much ancestrally linked. And... Of course, Shakespeare, like the greatest tragedies of the modern day are just reworkings of Shakespeare. This is something that's really, really prevalent in the way of Western storytelling. It's a really simple five act structure, uh, or not five act, but like five beats. There are like pretty much five beats. And several of the important parts are the audience knows is the point. The audience knows going in that this is a tragedy. And the audience knows why it's going to happen. There is a huge amount of dramatic irony that happens in Greek tragedies. Your main character has a fatal flaw. The audience knows the fatal flaw. And they are watching and waiting for the moment to happen where the fatal flaw becomes the downfall of the hero. There's something about like the inevitability of it, right? Like that it, it was always going to be this way and that like you said, the audience know, is able to tell from the beginning that, oh, this will not end well. It was very much a sense of dread that built up along the story, waiting for it to happen. And that release is kind of like the climax of the story. If thinking about like a your regular five act part story, very much the same, very, very similar. The that moment would be the climax, basically, of the tragedy. Another part is, which is something that's very interesting that we'll probably be talking about in relation to Supernatural, is that there was direct address to the audience. Greek tragedies are very, were populated by both characters and a chorus or an ensemble that explained to the audience context, details, or even uh, straight up meanings and theses and overarching themes would directly address the audience. And the audience in turn would kind of res be responsive to that. So the audience was very much a meta part of the Greek tragedy experience. I don't like where this is going, okay. This is interesting because early in season seven, we talked about uh, the Icarus myth as it relates to Cass in the end of season six and the very beginning of season seven. This is ringing a lot of bells for me right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a third important thing about Greek tragedy is they quite often, almost always, had a catharsis. It ended in some sort of assuaging of the audience's feelings to understand why this had to happen and why this was a uh, necessary to tell the story that the playwright was trying to tell, which was often a, in Greek society, Greek tragedies were often performed in the festival of Dionysus or something along those lines. Basically several tragedies we'd be told over every day. There would be like three tragedies 
for like the first four days. And on the fifth day, they would do all comedies. But the point of the tragedies were that they were directly addressing the topics that were happening at the time. Theater is always political commentary, but like this was very much like actively addressing what was happening in society at the time for the purpose of not only educating the audience, but to also provide catharsis to the audience about what was happening. Very much the building, the building blocks of what these stories were going to be were the audience itself. It was very much addressed to its specific audience. I think another important part of the tragedy is something called the reversal. It's almost like the 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 character, our, our hero, our tragic hero, has to have a moment where he, like, he has to think that everything is going to work out and he has to take an action and then realize the action that he took is the reason why everything falls apart so it's kind of that reversal is what makes it kind of a tragedy is because he is of his own demise and it's not just about his fatal flaw it's like the choice of action making him think that his choice of action is the reason why it'll work out and it's the reason why he fails there's one thing that i want to say about catharsis just because um this was we mentioned this in in the supernatural opinion podcast but like that's one thing that i am interested in in terms of like how people react to narratives that they see on screen in in the modern world uh or or books or whatever and catharsis has to do with both feeling a lot of of what they call in greek it would be the 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 translation to pity and also a purging of emotions right so there's this idea that like by feeling for this character you're also purging your own emotions in regards to similar situations in your life. One thing that I truly felt when I read uh, the Song of Achilles, and we'll talk about that in a second, but like when I read the Song of Achilles, I felt that like I, I, there was a release of emotions that was really quite strong, um, but it also wasn't like, I didn't feel despair or I didn't feel like, uh, we're, we're gonna keep that word. I didn't feel despair, I just, purged a lot of my emotions and and so i i wanted to just mention that and and that's kind of where it brings me like i feel like this is in contrast to a lot of the things that we have seen develop in supernatural as being part of their like ethos to bring another greek word but like a lot of supernatural is about like making your own way learning and changing and growing and not actually like keeping that one fatal flaw, but being able to work on it. And I just find that to be such a a different kind of storytelling. Absolutely. First of all, catharsis makes me itch. Oh. I am a Gilmore Girls stan. Gilmore Girls fans out there recognize catharsis makes me itch. Don't like <laughs> catharsis. But I think something about catharsis... Uh, especially in modern storytelling. And something that also happens in Supernatural is a lot of modern tragedies will leave catharsis out with the purpose of, like, making you sit in it. And Supernatural doesn't do this often. Like, you were saying the way that Supernatural is, like, about the development and the change, and there's something a big part about that. The first episode that comes to my mind is about the when they're stuck in the mental health hospital. Which time, though? Because <laughs> that does happen a couple of times. <laughs> Pudding. Pudding, yes, okay. 
and the end of the episode they there's no catharsis they just let it sit and they don't ever address it again they move on the thing about catharsis is that sometimes letting yourself experience the emotion is the power is powerful thing and the bottling it up can also be detrimental to your audience if there's no release valve yeah hey everyone go to therapy everyone needs therapy (laughs) doesn't matter who you are but i think about that mental health episode because it was a very purposeful thing to leave an episode about mental health with no catharsis I also think was a very strong statement that Superna- the creators of Supernatural yes. were sublimely putting out there. The way that it sh- it was built into the ethos of the show, but like in a lot, in several hypocritical ways, they drop the catharsis in ways that either make a point or don't work, and which we will get to later. Oh, yes, we will. <laughs> I find that we're, when we're talking about Greek tragedy, like I'm not thinking Supernatural, you know what I mean? Like I... Mm-hmm. I find Supernatural to be overall like a pretty hopeful uh, narrative, especially with all of the initiatives that sort of like happened around it with like, you're not alone, um, always keep fighting and all that stuff. So it's it's like the two don't quite work together. And yet I feel like it tried to be so hard at the end. And it's just... So you're, you're n- really nailing on the cognitive dissonance of... <laughs> Greek tragedy in SPN and the cognitive dissonance between what the creators of the show thought the show was and what the audience of the show watching the show thought the show was. The cognitive dissonance when we would talk to the creators and there would just be this like wall. There's so many examples of conventions where people would ask questions and the actors or writers would just go, oh. I mean, wasn't really thinking about that. And it's like, you mean you weren't thinking about, like, the fact that they stared at each other for, like, 20 seconds on screen making direct eye contact until, like, season 12? We went through, like, we went through 10 years of this before you started thinking about it? Hello? That cognitive dissonance just doesn't... (laughs) That's something that we talk a lot on on Carrying Weirwood with Drew. It's that, like, it seems like there were clearly very different teams on the writing team that seemed to be telling stories their or, or the story their own way, which sort of makes it feel like it's very disjointed. And I think, I think that that's also one of the things that we're kind of putting our finger on right now as well. It's like, are we writing a procedural today? Are we writing a Greek tragedy? Are we writing a... A love story. Which one is it? All three, maybe. (laughs) Season 15 tried really hard to be all three. (laughs) Season 15 tried to be a lot of things. Kind of keeping all of that in mind, for those listeners who may not know the stories of Achilles and Patroclus, like, could you let us know a little bit about, like, your your experience of that story and and relationship because talked about this briefly before but like mine is really truly only through uh the song of achilles written by madeline mccann which i understand can be problematic if we're talking about like quote-unquote actual achilles and patroclus uh i understand that this is a a novelized version of the story but it's truly my own my only point of contact with it other than like the stuff I've heard uh, before I haven't read the Iliad. So what about you? (laughs) 
I was first introduced to Achilles and Patroclus in uh, the Iliad. Homer's the Iliad, which is the prequel to the Odyssey. Everyone wore it, read the Odyssey at school at one point. Read the Iliad too. It's it's really great. Um, it's long, but it's really great. Also, there is a new translation coming out soon, or it has come out, where it's the first professional translation by a woman. I know. I can't believe this. In twenty twenty something, like I I actually own the version of the uh, the Odyssey, and I haven't read it, but I, I'm just, I want that to be my first contact with it. I'm very excited about it. I cannot wait I to hear your thoughts on, on that, because just the amount of new information that has come, just, just because a woman was had their hands in the mix, fascinated to see what, what she does with uh, Achilles and Patroclus in this version. Yeah. Achilles is the main character of the Iliad. The story of Achilles and Patroclus in this is uh, kind of the basis of all, I'm going to call them AP stories, just for the sake of this. They have become such a topic of conversation, not just nowadays. Maybe for international listeners, what do you mean by AP stories? I meant like A slash P, meaning Achilles slash Patroclus stories. Okay, cool. That's what I meant by that. There's a technical term. I think it's like Achillean. That also can refer, I think, to stories about like Achilles heel. My terminology is a little iffy. So so long as we all have the same definitions to start with, it's all good. All good. But Achilles and Patroclus have been like a topic of conversation since forever, basically. Everyone's how on puts their two cents in. Aristotle, Plato, they were talking about what this relationship was and what it meant, and it's kind of never stopped. They have been the Brangelina since the since the Greek times. Like, they are what everyone talks about, and every five years, everyone remembers them and goes, you know what, we should really talk about this again. Even after they split up, we still talk about it. Every year, there's a moment where we're just like, well, Brangelina. Would you agree that they're like the original ship? Are they the original ship? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. They definitely were probably the first top-bottom discourse ship discourse. I'm not even joking. They are like <laughs> one of the first discussions of philosophers, actual philosophers, discussing who was the top and who was the bottom. I think I do remember reading a paper about that, actually. It's coming screaming back to me. So back to the story, Achilles was the, there is this prophecy that the war with Troy between basically Greece, but it was referred to as something else because they are a set of nation states and Greece didn't really exist, would come to an end when uh, Achilles was destined to bring the war to an end. Achilles would have to kill the Troy version of Achilles, his dark link, if you will, for video game people out there. Uh, named Hector. When Achilles killed Hector, it would ultimately lead to his own death. But Achilles would bring down, would bring the war with Troy to an end. The war with Troy has to do with golden apples, Aphrodite, gods, Paris, Helen, all that. That matters, but like, not to really Achilles. It's almost a footnote in Achilles' story, I find, whenever you start talking about that. Like, that's another story. That's another episode of a podcast kind of thing. Exactly. Patroclus is described as his companion in the Iliad. 
he they do use a version of the word love that can mean brotherly love it can mean camaraderie love it can also be mean romantic love it means all of it in reference between the two of them however in the iliad achilles is very affectionate to patroclus and like they stay they live in the same tent they basically they spend all of their time together. Like, he is very, very affectionate to Patroclus. They were roommates. They were roommates. Like, legitimately roommates. They were roommates. Okay. All right. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, Achilles, in contrast, is, like, very harsh to everyone else. He doesn't really care about anyone else. He just cares about Patroclus. Anyway, there has to do with thing where Achilles' general, Agamemnon, like, disrespects Achilles. So Achilles is like, I'm not going to fight the war with Troy. And... That means they start losing. Like, Greece starts losing the war with Troy because Achilles is like, no, just no. I'm going to throw a fit and I'm going to go hang out with my boyfriend in our tent and we're going to have a great time and we're going to sing and play the lyre together and, you know, just chill. And then Agamemnon is like, dang it, I have to apologize to him, but I'm not actually going to apologize to him. I'm just going to, like, be like, hey, bro, just help us out but I'm not actually going to apologize for what I did. And so he sends an envoy to try to convince uh, Achilles. And Achilles is like, he didn't apologize, so no. And is like a sassy little gay boy being like, no. The envoy tries to convince Patroclus to convince Achilles to... They're like, okay, we can't convince him. Let's convince his boyfriend to convince him for him. And Patroclus can't do it. Patroclus knows, like, this is very detrimental. People are dying. Like, we, this needs to end. And depending on the version, depending on the translation, depending on how you're dissecting the story, either Achilles is like, well, why don't you just go do it? Why don't you go fight? Put on my armor and go fight. Or Patroclus is convinced by the envoy to put on Achilles's armor and go fight. One way or another, Patroclus dresses as Achilles, goes to battle, and he everyone thinks it's Achilles. And he eventually... He is killed by Hector or Dark Link. And when Achilles finds out, he is so stricken with grief and eventually goes into such a rage over said grief that he does the thing that he swore he would never do, which is he, go he goes and kills Hector, which eventually brings down his own demise and his own death. Overall, the death of his loved one is the thing that puts him into such a depressive state that he gets into a uh, content warning, a suicidal state, which I wonder if we've seen that before. I don't know. Maybe two or three times on the show only. They weren't like overarching, huge narrative moments, season finale moments, series finale moments, nothing like that. So the important part is that a, there's a lot of discussion about whether or not Patroclus and Achilles were lovers, or if they were a verse, the, um, oh, I am going to get this word so wrong. Uh, the Greek, or if they were a part of the Greek tradition of an older male and a younger male, pederastry, pederastry, something that starts with a P. I, it's a word that I have only ever seen and have never spoken aloud, so I don't know how to form it in my mouth. I feel that. That's fine. <laughs> That's okay. But yes, uh, the apprenticeship where an older male would take a younger male, teach him the ways. It was very uh, much an Athenian thing, or a lot of Athenian texts survive about this practice, about 
forming him into the perfect Athenian man by training an older man, teaching him the ways of society and philosophy and even sex in ways of modern ways. The older one would be the top and the younger male would be the bottom. That was an established male bond that was not necessarily romantic, but it was a very close societally recognized male bond, which, uh, male bond. So was it that type of bond? Was it full on love uh, in the Iliad? Achilles' speech about Patroclus's death is directly parallel to Hector's speech about Hector's wife dying. Like it's full on parallel to each other. You mean like another parallel we may or may not have seen in season 15? Yeah, structural parallelism in Supernatural between Cass and Dean and romantic relationships. And then very, very specifically, like Plato and Aristotle disagreed about who was the top and who was the bottom or who was the older male and who was the younger male. Mm. Patroclus is technically older than Achilles, but Achilles was the greatest warrior in all of Greece. And, you know, so there there was like, dis there was actual discussions about who was the top and who was the bottom. Right, 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 right. Or if this was a romantic love, or was this a established male bond, or was this just, were they just comrades? Were they just good friends? That discussion never stopped. I was going to say, this discussion is still ongoing today, because one of the things that is, is being said about that new translation of, of the Odyssey, so not quite you know, uh, Achilles and Patroclus yet, but uh, it's that the translator, I've heard, and I quote, takes liberties about the text, which I, I again, I don't quite know what that means or if it's just a way of saying like, oh, this can't possibly be it. But I just find it interesting that this is something that is still being discussed today and that there there seems to be something to be like people who care about this care about it a lot um people who have a stake in arguing that their bond was platonic like they argue really strongly in ways that 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 would ring to queer ears as kind of homophobic absolutely i well i think it has a lot to do with the way that ancient, like the way that Greece is upheld in white patriarchal uh, society or white in the ideals, um, Greece, Rome, uh, this Western uh, ideology uh, that is intrinsically linked to white supremacy, patriarchy. Achilles is like, one of the great heroes of Greece, of the Greek tradition, from a modern perspective. Like, he in Greece, he was also, like, well-known and understood and, like, a part of the tradition. But, like, the way that Achilles has... We still say the term Achilles heel. Like, that is still integrated into the way that English speakers talk. Or Achillean rage is still a phrase. It's less used than Achilles heel. But this idea of this practically indestructible golden man the fact that this pinnacle of of the greek tradition being in a homosexual relationship is 
surprisingly, you know, threaten it threatens that uh, masculine ideal, which is something very similar to one Dean Winchester, this pinnacle of masculinity. Because God forbid that, you know, a, uh, a queer man would be presenting as, as masculine in, in a way that upholds the ideals of cis straight white masculinity. Exactly. It also speaks to the issue of the societal ways that men interact with each other. One of the things about uh, pederasty or this idea of the older male, younger male, is that it is a established male bond that is not romantic. That it, there's something about a power dynamic that is there. So even if it's this thing that this relationship is not, it is sexual and not, but not romantic. There's something in there about addressing that men have, this is, Greece is a world that has di a different set of rules in with between male relationships, which they did, and establishing that supernatural is a world that has distinct laws and rules about how men can interact and have relationships. Can you say more about that a little bit? I because I love that. I think that supernatural, like there's we are so often given the tagline that supernatural is not about romance. It was never about romance, which I fundamentally disagree with because the first episode, the pilot episode, the actions that spark the entire series is the death of a romantic love for both of the for both their father and the main character of the first arc of the show. And that death and that character, that ideal of romance is the overarching motivation for the main character for at least the first two seasons. I completely agree. And I do want to mention also that this is reinforced by the Winchesters that called, you know, that tagged itself as a telling of the epic love story between John and Mary. And so this isn't something that like dates from 15 now, maybe like closer to almost 20 years ago. No, no, no. We're talking about something quite recent here. This is still the way that this is described. Instead of saying Supernatural wasn't about romance and it was about these brotherly love or the love between these two brothers or about their relationship, it was always about the two brothers. It was about the two brothers, but it was about how these two brothers loved in all forms. It was about their familiar relationships. It was about their sexual love that they have for other people, their romantic love. It was about the familial found family bonds that they created. It was about blood family bonds and love. It was about how these two versions and pinnacles of masculinity going through the world with incredibly high stakes loved and how they loved the world. Like it's, it was all about how these two men loved other people and loved them and learned to love themselves in moments and then forgot how to love themselves. It took Dean 15 seasons and the love of his life dying in order to figure out how to love himself. So like the, the establishing of a set of rules about how men love each other is really how the whole story was structured. So like Dean in the early, especially in the first season, second episode and third episode, it's structured, structured the exact same way where Dean sees a woman, 
flirts with her the entire episode. She doesn't respond, doesn't engage, doesn't interact. And at the end of the episode, she finally does respond and Dean retreats back into himself. Those are like, that happens very, in the first season, several, several times. Like he can express a sexual love or a sexual flirtation. Interest. But once the woman responds to a deeper meaning or with any sort of deeper feelings or like something, he retreats back to himself. Which feels so incredibly queer. It's so queer. It's so queer. (laughs) And the only person that we see Dean, especially in the early seasons, ever open up to is Sam. It's very clear that there is a set of rules about how men interact with women and then interact with other men. Dean won't ever emotionally open up to anyone who, unless he's his brother. Yes. That is that is the rule that they establish. Dean, especially in the first iterations of meeting Bobby, or when Bobby is introduced to the story, doesn't even emotionally open up to Bobby. He doesn't emotionally open up to his dad. He only, like, the first time he does openly emotionally it to his dad was more about, like, Sam. So it's like we're creating these rules of, like, men can't emotionally interact with each other unless it is about, like, a blood relative. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And then it, like, grows from there throughout the story when we get Bobby coming in and then we get Cass coming in. And they, and even uh, Crowley coming in eventually. Benny is a huge change to the rules, but it's just kind of expanding them. It's never actually, and we, we, we start to form from a basic set of rules, and then we watch and explore Dean and Sam try to engage in those relationships, following those rules and pushing them to their boundaries, If that to create like a society of how men can interact and feel things for each other. Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I am so excited to, on the show, get to the moment where we can start talking about Benny because I feel like that truly, truly changes the way that Dean sees relationships with other men. Going even further, when he meets the two gay hunters later on, and he doesn't, he was like, oh, what is it like? And he's like, uh, he, he like, he doesn't comprehend that at first. And then it's like a light goes off and he's you can do that because in the world of supernatural, they can't like the, the idea is that they can't and like that the two hunters being in love is a very meta moment for the audience where it's like, it feels like the world was kind of infiltrated for a second. And even if you look at the way that the camera shoots back in that moment, uh, the camera work there, I think is very intentional. Mm. So like even the way that Dean interacts with queerness in the show fascinating when he's flirted with with the vampire or the vampire before he gets bitten before dean gets bitten like the that flirting relationship it's very dismissive like it's very shut down no and then it goes into a pseudo pseudo sexual iteration this version of gay sex like vampire drinking blood from another from a man is like a gay sex metaphor basically we also see that as a, a sexual relationship between Sam and Ruby. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> oh no, did I just illuminate something? <laughs> so the world of Supernatural has a set of rules about how men can interact. Men can't have gay sex with each other, but vampires can drink blood from other men. 
men can't have emotional feelings for each other, but they can die for each other and throw themselves in front of like men can't be can't like other men, but their siren can be a man. Exactly. But that siren is because he really wants a brother or a comrade and it's or a companion. A companion, yes. That understands him and likes all the same music and likes all the same cars and yes, I see. I'm sorry, it's just so, it's just a lot. <laughs> it's just a lot. Even at the end of the day, back to like all the way what you were saying before about the way that people can be homophobic about it. It's like the idea of romantic love being the, the deal breaker in a lot of ways. Which we can also talk about how like romantic love is seen as a weakness and patriarchal white supremacy, but toxic masculinity soapbox stepping down for the next five minutes at least. We'll probably be back. No, but I think this is really interesting, especially right now. I mean, we're recording this uh, like very late September, like just to kind of give people like a, a time frame because this is scheduled for a December release. But like this is we're just coming out of like a whole couple of weeks talking about how men, cis straight white men think about the Roman Empire apparently every day. And I'm not saying that like it's not okay for men to have hobbies or that it's not okay for men to like dream about things. But I just find it so, so interesting that what cis straight white men seem to be thinking about a lot is a symbol that is used as a, as a dog whistle for white supremacy. I, I find that fascinating. Something that I experienced in school there was kind of a gender bias about who was supposed to be interested in history about greece and who was supposed to be interested in rome really we would do those segments together you would do greece and then you would do rome right right back back to back and it was introduced to us in a way of Greece was really focused on crafts and art and things that were supposed to be feminine. And like Sparta was Greece. Like you would get the thing it was that was the transition. Literally, you would end with like Sparta and Athens and you would like you would end with Sparta and you would go straight from Sparta to Rome. And that was kind of like, oh, now the guys can be interested because it's now about war. And all right, boys, dress up in your Sparta outfit or like your and like then we would get to Rome. And then it was like you would get the myth about Romulus and Remus and the wolf. And then you would go to the way that Rome conquered the world. And it was about conquering. And it never talked about the arch like architecture of Rome or the um, artistic expressions of Rome. It would be we would talk about the gladiators. And we would talk about that. That was theater. Like, that was art. They put on huge performances. But that was never talked about. It was talked about. We talked about the fights. And that this was, like, what boys should like. God, all right, boys. Like, get, we get to watch this scene from Ru Russell Crowe fight in uh, the Gladiator movie. Like, 30 seconds of it. And so it's it was, like, very much ingrained in the way that that was taught, Greece and Rome were taught that in history at least that Greece was more feminine and Rome was more masculine. 
to bring it back to Supernatural, it brings me sort of back to this idea of like the audience that the original creators were targeting versus the audience that they got. And it sort of feels like they were aiming for this like Roman Empire loving uh, audience. And instead they got the Greeks. <laughs> like, and when I mean the Greeks, I mean like the women and the gays. It seems like that was resented by some of the creators at least for a very long time. And I would argue up until like the last season of the show. I remember one of the first interviews that Jared Padalecki did where he said, I love to be, I love that I'm finally getting to do a show that's for guys. He was just coming straight off of Gilmore Girls, which is, you know, quintessential, the show for women in the fall. Um, I have already started my rewatch. Good, good, good. He said like he was so excited to do a show for guys and that guys would come up to him now and talk about how cool the show, which is so fascinating. There are men who do watch this show. Like there are so many straight cis white men who watch the show. Of course, of course. They never had the emotional connection to it. They're not the ones that go to cons, let's put it this way. They're not the ones that are the bread and butter of the actors, the creators, the show in general. Like, they're not the ones who are campaigning on Twitter for more seasons. You know what I mean? Like, It's like they wanted the Star Wars response. What a good choice of media, because, you know, Han Solo and, and Luke Skywalker were like the archetypes that were used for Sam and Dean, right? Almost directly pulled, uh, pulled from that. And it was very much like a... Everyone kind of wanted to be Dean, but like, like, cause he was the cool, sexy one. And then Sam was like the heart of gold, like tragic hero. Mm -hmm. They wanted that kind of fanatical male response, but like the backbone of Star Wars, the lore, really built by women. Like, let's be like that extended universe has the touches and influences of women all over it. And then it was all made non-canon whole other podcast episode. Another podcast episode. <laughs> Instead, they got they got the fan fiction community. They got the the female-centered fandom response. Star Trek is not still airing today because of men. It is airing because of women. I mean, let's also be very realistic. It's it's there the slash shippers are really the bread and butter and the backbone of of what makes a show last. It makes me think of two things one it makes it like the idea of a homophobic person making like being resentful of how they're making money they hate the reason why they are making money but they're not going to stop like money is more the fact that they're making money is more important than the fact that who they're making money off of this is a very side tangent 911 there is a theory that is going around i have perpetuated this theory other have also come up with this theory like we all came up with this theory separately but i i have i said this I've said this many times on the internet i think that ryan guzman is purposely playing his character more and more queer like as the seasons go on because it is going to give him job security and give him longevity as a career because the more that this slash ship is loved in 911 like the longer he like retains relevance to the story like the way they structured the story his character has become very isolated but you cannot get rid of him because of this slash relationship he is like so beloved amongst the audience and the family and the fandom 
I mean, not having seen 911, but what you're telling me sort of sounds like what happened to Castiel around like season seven. They would write lines like, Castiel, isn't the purpose for you to be bait? Like that was a meta, very much a meta conversation that was happening in that moment where the writers were talking directly to the audience. That was the metaphorical Greek chorus, right? That you were talking about where like, you know, aren't you joined at the everything? Exactly. Those kinds of things were very much the reason why that ships lasted so long. Why the, the, the show lasted so well is those scattering those moments throughout. They didn't happen every episode throughout this relationship that it had with its audience where we were still hanging on like by till the end, 15 seasons that this was going to happen. And it kind of did halfway did. I mean, we know that it did. If we were to actually kind of come back to our to what what we were originally talking about here between the parallels and the differences, we've talked about a lot of parallels, right? Um, between between these two stories, these two love stories, whether they're romantic or not, you know. Having read, I'm just kind of thinking about how how to give context about this one. We have so many thoughts. <laughs> yes. There are a lot of thoughts in my head. And and because the question that I have or the prompt that I have on my notes here is why one works and the other falls flat. And I sort of want to take draw from my own experience reading the Song of Achilles. And uh, like we know how the story ends, right? Like Achilles dies, um, Pat Patroclus dies, like we, we know all of that. And so it wasn't like a surprise when one died and then the other died not too long after. Um, but there's still like this outpouring of emotion that comes out or that came out for me when I was reading it. And, you know, I thought that maybe knowing the ending wouldn't make it better, but I don't really think that it did. Like I was still like, incredibly sad at the end, but I sort of felt like, like it felt like I'd had a good cry. You know what I mean? Like when you're, you purposely watch like a sad movie or read a sad book and you're like, okay, I've had my cry. I'm feeling better now. Like I can move on with my life. And it's just the complete antithesis of how I felt after Supernatural. Like, I mean, I've talked about this a lot, but the way that I felt after watching the end of Supernatural, truly, like, um, it, it, it created a trauma response where I was, like, inactive, uh, like, I felt like I was living trauma on a day-to-day -day basis every day that went by, and I didn't understand what was going on, and it was only in listening to... Uh, the fangirl business with Krisha Anderson and um, Catherine, Mc... Catherine McKenna, when they actually pointed out, they're like, this, it sort of feels like some people are having a trauma response to that. And I remember just like hearing that and just sobbing and being like, that is why I'm having all of these emotions. That's, that's what's going on. But the song of Achilles didn't do that to me. And I'm like, why is it that those two things that, seemingly tell a similar story where like one dies because of the actions of the other which is what happens to Cass in in 15 in, in 15 18 let's be very realistic um and then the other dies inevitably quote unquote because I don't think it was inevitable but whatever that's a whole other thing um like I think and I and I think maybe this is where like the starting point is that maybe like Dean's death was not inevitable maybe that's why it felt so unfair and unjust to me 
the difference is, and I have not read Song of Achilles, so I don't know exactly how it's structured in the book. I mean, really, it's the same narrative arc where, like, Patroclus dies, killed by Hector, and then, you know, Achillean rage, he dies, he kills Hector, he dies. Same thing, same thing. I think the important part about why I was, like, talking about, like, Greek tragedy is that that sense of dread, that sense of knowing, and also the... So watching it unfold, it's like you you know, the, like you said, going into it, you knew it beforehand, but you were still having this emotional response to it. That's the way that Greek tragedies work, is that you are supposed to know. It's not about what's going to happen. It's the how and the why that is what grabs you and what you are ha- like have an emotional response to. Like going into like these these Greek stories nothing should be nothing is a surprise in a lot of ways it's it's just the details and it's the it catches you in those details about and those little ornamentations versus and again not not only is nothing is a surprise is that it it follows its own rules in a lot of ways i think the difference with cassandine was we had established this rule that no one's ever really dead in Supernatural. And Cass, the rule was, Cass always comes back. And we know in the finale, in this final arc, both of those rules are broken. Dean really dies. He fully dies and is, is, is in heaven. And I have thoughts about heaven, whatever. And Cass doesn't come back. Not even on screen, like nothing. We do not see him again after that episode, which was, oh, I can't believe they did that to us, honestly. We know that Cass is going to go to the empty. They they make a they make a deal. He makes a deal. We know the deal is going to come to fruition. I'm so sorry, but I need to interject. I never thought that they would actually cash in on that deal because when I remember... And this was before I was part of fandom, so I had no idea of like the kind of discourse that was going on, right? But I just remember watching that episode and being like, there is no freaking way that they are going to cash in on that deal because that would mean he would have to tell Dean how he feels and Dean would have to tell him that he feels the same way. And I remember kind of like laughing watching it, watching the deal happen. And I'm like, that's again, another thing that they're never going to come back to because they can't give Cass happiness unless it involves being with Dean. So I didn't watch it live. I watched it after the fact and after knowing where it was going to come. But the reason why I was like, oh, I still felt that sense of dread or the inevitability of it was because, because of the writer's strike of 2008 and Dean having to go to hell that the deal went through. Like we had established this rule Dean and Sam get out of a lot of deals, but that the big ones happen. And it's the kind of the same thing with um, the the end of season five. Like the thing that has been told is going to be inevitable is go- happens at the end of season five. One of they have to the fight happens and it it slightly works around the rules of it. They bend the rules. But but the thing is, like, it happens, but then it comes back, right? And uh... that was the rule that didn't happen with Cass. 
what was even worse was in the promo, Misha Collins was in the promo for the next two episodes and he doesn't show up. And he's this idea of like, everyone thought Cass is going to come back. Like they are going to save Cass. He's come out of the empty before, like established. And so what happened, so the inevitability the, the the established rules of the storytelling of Supernatural are broken, and they are broken in order to make us feel sad, as it instead, or in order to be dramatic, instead of in order to enhance the story. Because again, with Greek tragedy, the whole point is to teach a lesson, also. One of the points is to teach a lesson, like don't don't be Icarus, you know, or don't don't be Achilles, like don't don't have too much hubris. Don't love another man. Or don't tell him that you love him. But here, what is the lesson that we learn? There's been so much discussion about like barrier gaze and like the in the confession scene. Right. But the thing that it, it really comes down to for me about why I that there is no joy in that moment for me, as much as Misha Collins tries to inject and does his best, and again. I do not fault him for it. He has to do what he has to do. This was a meaningful thing that did for him that turned out poorly. Yes. The thing that it comes down to is a queer man, his existence being the reason why he has to die. And like uh, his feelings and his existence and the way that he is and how he feels is the very reason that is being sacrificed for a man who it is ambiguous about whether or not he feels the same way. It like that that is the thing that I cannot, I will not get over because it is shown as a good thing. This self-sacrificial thing is shown as a good thing. Achilles going into that depressive rage is in order, like he goes into that Achillean rage is his own demise. It is like a bad thing arguably a choice also it's a behavior it's it's not yeah it's not who he is necessarily and same thing with patroclus whether or not you want to like who is achilles and who is patroclus in this moment is it's a, a whole other thing but patroclus makes the choice to don the armor not because of achilles like it's achilles choice not to join the war but patroclus wants the war to be over too there are people actively dying. Like, Patroclus is trying to do his best, saving thousands of other people. Cass, in that moment, is dying for Dean. Like, just for Dean. In order to save him. Like, he calls upon the deal. He enacts the other half of the deal in order to save Dean. That, it, that is, there's a fundamental difference between those two things. Of why they make the choices that they do. And Patroclus doesn't go out to die. He is not actively trying to die in that moment. He is struck down. There needs to be a very clear distinction here because Patroclus goes out, or at least again in the Madeline McCann version, he goes out truly not knowing that this is going to be his demise. Um, he goes out with hope, with termination and, and fear also. He is very, uh, anyway, in that retelling of the story, he's fearful. But then when he sees that it's going well and that seeing who, you know, they think is Achilles on the on the battlefield is giving so much hope to the to the warriors, 
like it's actually quite a beautiful moment and then you you know and then he dies which is <laughs> which is terrible but but it's not the same as what happens with Cass in that moment and it's also not the same as what happens with Dean again depending on who you want to see as who also that speech that Dean gives in the finale which is a very problematic speech in so many ways in regards to mental health and in regards to suicidal ideation or and we we don't have to get into all of that i w this is not the space and time i think maybe to get into all of that <laughs> did, did you see my eyes just instantly water and you're like oh maybe we need to step away from this a little bit <laughs> it's still so raw why is it still so raw it's been three years <laughs> when we have seen dean be in his own Achillean depression and Achillean rage before, because this is not the first time that Cass has died. And it's not the first time, like we uh, have seen that Achillean rage before the other one, the, in the finale, very, very interesting. Deo, Deo says Machina also comes from Greek tragedies, this intervention of a divine, the intervention of the divine being the reason that the story ends the way that it does. That, that is where that originated. There is this Deo Ex Machina in, um, in the finale around Dean's death where we have removed God from the situation. Like, the divine and heavenly in Supernatural is ended. The thing is, is that those were always characters. Those were always, like, integral versus now we have the Deo Ex Machina of reality. Like, that is the reason why Dean dies is because they are uh like this is the real world kind of thing like he like there is no one to save them this is reality they are no longer fictional characters they are people who are living their lives and people die that that is the reason and dean has like this acceptance of it and like that this is the way that things are supposed to be mentality around it which is antithetical to the catharsis that happens in the tradition of tragedy where they have to have a the moment of reconciliation for themselves is about their own decisions not the world around them so like they use deus ex machina incorrectly in the final moments of dean of course this was gonna happen like you you thought you were mr big man and turns out that like you know maybe you're invincible but your boyfriend was not um like this is not that's really not how i felt about dean either in in that moment and and i'm also thinking about like this this desire to die that he has after cast dies every single time i'm i'm thinking because we're right in the middle of like of season seven right now and he goes into this Achillean rage where he kills, you know, Amy, right? Like we're talking about that a lot right now, Drew and I, the episodes haven't come out yet, but we're talking about that a lot. And then in the Osiris episode, he's just ready to die because he's like, oh yes, whatever, let me die. Like I have, I am guilty of all of the things that you're accusing me of, let me just die. And then the other time that Cass dies later on, he's also, he actively seeks death no, wait, that's twice. Again. Mm. Two more times. Two more times where he actively seeks death. 
literally and billy the incarnation of death shows up like he seeks death actively so like you can't possibly tell me that this was not a suicide I, like I, I will not believe anything else it's impossible him seeking death achilles does the very thing that he knows will bring his own demise because of the death of Patroclus. So, like, right. there is that moment of, like, I know that this is bad for me personally, but he also knows, he also knows it's going to end the war with Troy. Like, that's, that's also part of it, is Achilles is making this choice. Like, he has this, and it's, Dean always has the cover of this is for the world, too. That's something that's so interesting about the way that, you know, they have to address each other. Like Sam addresses it of like, we can find another way to do this. Da, 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 da. And Dean is like, nope, this is how the only way that this is going to work. Like he uses that as a cover almost. Especially when he like leads the charge with, we can find another way so many other times, right? Like he's kind of the captain of team free will, right? Yeah. As soon as Cass is gone, he goes into an Achillean rage. He goes into where he is blind to feeling for himself. And also Cass, so very much we were talking about the parallels between Achilles, the difference between the differences and comparisons. Cass as Patroclus, there is that the idea of Patroclus putting on Achilles' armor. Yeah. And Cass making the decisions that he makes because he learned from Dean. Yes. Is. So, like, so many of the times that th the things that Cass does go wrong is because he learned how to do things from Dean, and Dean is the protected golden, like, he is the supernatural golden boy, like, mm -hmm. he is the chosen golden boy kind of thing, and Cass is a, honestly, more fallible, like, he is allowed to be fallible in a lot of ways, structurally, narratively speaking, but also in-universe, because Chuck makes Dean not fail and Chuck makes Cass be able to well no the crack in the chassis makes I was gonna say Cass be able to fail and this is why also that conversation that divorce you know conversation why does that thing always seem to be you like it hits so true because it's not and I mean I don't think that Cass is always the reason that things go wrong but like because Cass is the disruptor of the narrative, it makes sense that when he's around or when he makes decisions based on what Dean would do in that situation, things do go wrong. Because for anybody else but Dean, it wouldn't, it wouldn't happen this way. That conversation in conjunction with the conversation where Cass gives him back the, or the, the, the conversation where he gives him back the mixtape, where he was like, I needed a win. Like, I needed a win for you, for us, for, like, the team. Like, those two things where it's very much Cass trying to live up to a standard that is impossible for him to live up to, and Dean not being able to, like, reaching out an olive branch. Like, Dean is accepting of... It's almost like Dean is willing, accepting of a failure to a point because it's until that failure is, the thing that breaks him is when Cass does things without him. Like the failure happens without him. And it's like, 
they are two separate like the idea that Dean is Dean cannot understand a world that doesn't have Cass in it or where Cass is not functioning with him. But they are two separate people. Because Dean grew up in this codependent relationship with Sam where he only knows codependency in close rela close male relationships, the fact that Cass can act as a nebulous individual person fundamentally contradicts with the way that uh, Dean knows how to feel and function. Oh my god. I have two things to say about that. One, which I've already told you, I think, which is that I, I personally think the way, the reason why Dean so often talks about Cass being a brother is because to him, there is no love greater than brotherly love because he doesn't know anything else, right? Because of that codependency, which is why when I hear, oh, I don't like it when he calls him a brother, I'm like, I, I get what you mean, but it's probably not what you think it means. Like, this is not how Dean sees it. So that's number one. Number two, we've also talked about this before, where I find this idea that Dean doesn't know a world without Cass or can't imagine a world without Cass fascinating because, again, in the 300th episode, what really makes Dean turn around on the idea is not that Sam and him don't get along. It's not that he's in jail. It's that him and Cass don't have the relationship that they do. And that th that is the moment where he's like, we got to turn we got to turn it around we got to send back dad i don't care about anything else like this was my this and this is where he realizes what his true desire was right the pearl is supposed to show you your true desire <laughs> that's why i love that episode i know that so many people hate it but like i it's just it's it is truly illuminating one it reminds me of the siren episode but it also reminds me of, oh, is it called Free to Be Me and You? Free to Be You and Me. The, the thing about that episode that I think is so interesting is watching a world, living in a world where Dean does not have Sam and Dean being happier. And the thing about that choice at the, where, where they have to come back together at the end I think is so fascinating because it's when you were talking about what does Dean truly desire and it's like Dean knows a world where he gets to be with Cass. The reason why Sam and Dean's world is always so bad is because they are codependent with each other, but they cannot live without each other. It is like the quintessential thing of supernatural. Uh, so it brings me back to that moment where like we talk about the desire about what he truly wants. He has intimate knowledge of what that life would be like. And I think that is what's so fascinating about it. Because it's one of the first times that we actually get to see Dean truly happy for an entire episode. And laughing, just like laughing. We don't see Dean laughing all that often. Oh, and Cass enjoying it too. Cass is happy. The only person who's not happy in that episode is Sam. He's isolated. He's the one who's isolated in this one. Oh, goodness. All right, JJ, we've been talking for a good long time now, but is there anything else like with regards to the the main conversation that we've been having and the different branches that have sort of come out that you would like to say before 
before we end. For all of you out there who are storytellers, who are writers, who are or want to get into it or want to just have a better understanding of what you are watching, learning about how these stories came to be and how they function and like the Greek tradition in the Roman tradition in the Chinese tradition, you want to you want to understand the five man band that is Eastern storytelling. That is Journey to the West. It is one of the most influential works of all time. It is also a great story. Go back to the Greek plays. Go back to the Shakespeare. Go to Journey to the West. Go to all those. Like learning about these stories. Oh, we just had an hour and a half conversation about Achilles looking at Supernatural through the lens of Achilles and Patroclus. Like, and we have discovered so many things with each other in this conversation. And I think that the writers would do very well to understand their, like, learning about the history and the craft of storytelling will make you a better storyteller. And, well, if it doesn't provide more interest, maybe it can provide you some, some peace about why certain stories work and certain stories don't. That's what I have to say. Hope maybe it provided someone listening to this a little extra peace about, you know, why Achilles and Patroclus works and why Dean and Cass's story falls flat and almost being the greatest love story of all time. And that is why Achilles and Patroclus reigns supreme. <laughs> it still holds the title. One thing that you talked about or that we talked about together the last time you were, or like the first time that you were on here was Supernatural's legacy. And I do think that this, you know, look at the, the legacy of the Iliad and, and, and I mean, of course, you know, this is like a classical work and, and, you know, but like, look at the way that we still today to this day, talk about Achilles and Patroclus and, and wonder about the type of relationship they were truly in. And, and looking at the legacy of supernatural, I think is also interesting in that way, because it, now when you Google supernatural, it's articles about people being upset about the finale and pointing out all the things that didn't work narratively about it. Or the definitely bought by Warner Brothers articles about why they did work, which is always so fascinating to me because I remember when the finale dropped and then a w everyone freaked out about how awful it was. And then it was like two weeks later, you started seeing articles drop about why it actually worked. And every single one of those articles, the writer had to admit that they stopped watching the show around season seven and then like jumped <laughs> back in to watch the finale. And it's like, this uh, this uh, totally worked. This was totally what the story was going to be. And it was like, you admitted to not watching it for several seasons. <laughs> you haven't even watched half of it, literally. And you're telling me that the end works based on what you know of half of the show. Okay, cool. Good to know. Good to know. Warner Brothers has done a lot to try and change the narrative around Supernatural in many ways. Not in also including or trying to convince Misha Collins to remain openly bisexual when he is not in order to have better press around Supernatural two years after the show ended. That is how much of a stain... The end of this show is to the reputation of this story of Warner Brothers and Supernatural. Two years after the fact, trying to convince him to 
pretend to be bisexual. So for people who don't know, there's a lot of context around that. Uh, people who may not be a part of the fandom or an active part of the fandom, there's a lot of context around that that I sort of refuse to go into at this point in time. What JJ is saying is true. Alarmingly correct. <laughs> well, JJ, thank you so much for spending time with me today uh, and for having this amazing conversation, which I felt also like you said, like we were able to discover a lot of things together, which is part of the hermeneutic tradition, which is also a Greek tradition, by the way. So we're just loving the Greece today. We're we're loving Greece. I mean, I guess I fall within that. What is it? Gender divide of liking Greek, ancient Greece more than ancient Rome. So I don't know. <laughs> well, that's also the detrimental thing is because like Rome has so much architecture and so much theater. Percy Jackson didn't help. Because every single person who read Percy Jackson turned out to be queer later on in life. Yes. Well, where can we find you on social media? You can find me on uh, TikTok at JJB Waywatch. I'll be live every, pretty much every Thursday. We take a week off here and there. We, we do have lives. <laughs> you can find me also at JJB Waywatch also on the platform formerly known as Twitter. And uh, coming to threads, and you will find me talking about every now and then Supernatural, uh, 911, Our Flag Means Death Season 2. I'm so excited! Okay. Good omens. Uh, anything queer. Well, thank you. I'll definitely be dropping by on some of the Thirsty Thursdays. I do like to hang out once in a while. Always welcome. And you can find us on social media at Carrying Wayward, and you can become a patron or a supporter by heading to CarryingWayward.com. And as always, carry on our wayward friends. Carry on our wayward friends. <laughs>